Fire's burning, fire's burning. Draw nearer, draw nearer. In the glowing, in the glowing, come sing and be merry. I'm Ian Shanahan. And I'm Jade Harvey Beryl. And welcome to our Fireside Chat. Hello and welcome to Earthy Chats, Fables from the Field. This is our summer sub-series of Earthy Chats, where we're going to talk about our favourite outdoor learning equipment and resources as we share stories of our outdoor adventures and sometimes mishaps out in the field. You can use it in any kind of water and it's kind of the starter tool that leads to other useful toys which can be as simple as an ice cube tray like the classic i'm sure you've done it the classic pond study stream study whatever and you know you use the dip net that's how you get critters and then maybe throw them into kind of a general tub you know whatever you have lying around the house and then the ice cube tray you know get a little spoon scoop them out they each you can kind of categorize them and Dip nets, they're very simple, but there is so much potential with a dip net. And I think one of the great things about a dip net is the anticipation. You don't necessarily know what is going to emerge from the dip net after you take it out of the water. I had the great opportunity when I worked at Algonquin Park to design a program that was based around dip netting. And it took place in a beaver pond. And... Not surprisingly, we called it beaver pond study. So combining the terms beaver pond and pond study, what's your experience with dip nets like? I think mainly making sure that every child has one. If they have to share the dip nets, it's Yeah, the politics. Yeah, and it really it's like it's a it's a I feel like it's a, a sense of pride when they have the net they're in. They know they're about to do something. It's it's practical, it's hands on. But from a personal level, dip netting really was like an integral part of my childhood. Um, So not only did we have this sort of forest nature reserve that I'm pretty sure I've spoken about, Thorndon Country Park. Yes. um, With the deer and the forests and such. I miss deciduous forests, like fully canopy, bluebells in the spring. Anyway, Um, and they ran like sort of summer educational programs when we'd go out and do that and and then I think I did some at brownies as well which was always quite fun I liked my little necktie thing made me feel important um but another big way that I used dip nets was um I don't know what you call it over here but we would call it sort of rock pooling I've not heard the term but I can probably picture it this is me growing up and being very fortunate to get to go to Spain quite frequently, specifically an island called Menorca, which is the largest of the three Balearic Islands. You have not. Yep. Oh, that's it's my second home. Um, mm. And so we went with my maternal grandparents every year. And uh, side note, I don't know if you were aware of the sort of global fashion. I mean, it's finished now, I think, but where fish massage became a thing for a little brief time there in the sort of like 2010, 2015. 
fish <laughs> massage fish massage uh, where you would go um <laughs> i mean like you can't you can't where you go and put your feet in a tank of this particular species of fish we're gonna oh, okay. have to do an intercept where we write let people know the species of fish but it comes and it chews all of the dead skin from your feet and you would go and sit in a in a tank on a padded seat with your feet in a tank with a bunch of strangers and and the fish pick the dead skin off your feet now it became very popular i had it in Asia and mainly because a guy literally I was walking down an alley in Simreap in Cambodia and a guy jumps out from the side and shouts in my face you know you want fish massage and I was like as you do as as you do I I guess I perhaps I do if you're if you're so certain perhaps I do want fish massage anyway that's what it entailed and then later hmm, spoiler alert not not great uh, they found out that really they weren't changing the water between everybody's massage, which was actually, you know, dead skin being pulled off. So what was happening was it was pulling skin off and opening wounds, and then people's blood was going into the water, and then the fish bites another person, and there was a little, little, little concern about the sort of health and safety of that. So all these, there was one in every like downtown, or we call them high streets in the UK for about five years. Every every town had one, and then they like game over. But anyway, I really digressed there for a moment. Um, I'm fascinated. <laughs> you got to look it up, fish massage. I will. And it was like the la creme de la creme of, of like unique beauty aesthetic treatments, <laughs> you know, to go and put your feet into a tank of dirty water and have a fish eat the decaying flesh from your feet. Very fun. But the point of that story, and I'm very pleased because that reminded me, was that my nan, Nanny Nunu, as we used to call her, bless her, she's gone now, but... Yeah, she was the best. She invented fish massage because we used to go to a little place called Salgar, which was not, it wasn't where the um, the tourists went. It was, it was like a little fishing area and I'll get to the rock pools. So there's all these big tidal uh, rock pools that would be inundated and they were just teeming with life. But what my nan would do is sit with her feet over the sort of boat jetty, if effectively lots of fishermen doing their, their work around her. And these fish would swim in the Mediterranean Ocean and come and nibble all of the dead skin off my nan's feet. Now, if anybody needed, like legitimately needed a fish massage, it was my nan. She had the kind of feet... <laughs> The, you know, the, the the crusty dream nightmares are made of, like, absolutely horrendous, bless her. Not the most active human, but she used to sit right. there and the fish would come, come for her. Whilst, you know, so that tied that in, I think. I think that was relevant. But while yeah. this was happening, myself and my two brothers and my granddad, Papa Ted, uh, would go and catch crabs. And we would, every, every year, we'd, you know, we'd have our, our dip net. And uh, this was one of the ones with the longer handle. Mm -hmm. And before the euro wiped out independent currency in Europe, the Spanish had the peseta. Yeah. And I can't remember if it was a 20 peseta coin or something, but it was a donut. So it was a silver, about the size of a loony with a hole in the middle. And, and the perfect way to catch crabs from the rock pools was you would um, tie a string around through the loop and hold it. So you had your coin on a string. Then you'd stuff a bit of bread in the hole 
and you'd lower the coin into the oh god this is so nostalgic it's making me so happy thinking about it and you'd lower the coin in and then the crab would get his little pincers and he'd be trying to get the bread and then of course he'd pinch the whole of the coin and you would lift him up get the net under there have a good look at him investigate him they had these big orange ones they were like little gray faster scrabbly ones and um that you know there was there was starfish there was all kinds of other life in there but the crab, crabbing, I guess you'd call it, but we call crabbing. it rock crabbing, I think is the probably the technical term. Um, but that was like probably, I guess, one of my earliest field studies was being with my family looking at crabs in rock pools and then also sort of being like fascinated by the shape of the pools, that they were in these sort of tiered, like perfectly smooth circular columns dotted around this very rough volcanic rock that was like really mm-hmm. brutal on your feet you had to wear little shoes i had to wear the i used to wear these like jelly shoes they were like like hard yep. plastic looked like jelly and you know for me like looking at that was like my first taste of geology and oh like you know where does it live where's the best place to get crabs oh they you know they really like to be tucked in deep they also like where there's a bit of foliage or or um seaweed blocking them so they've got a bit of camouflage or hiding spot and i yeah we you you never see us without our dip nets stay you know from basically sun up to sundown that was that was the whole day it was pretty fun so that's two terms that I was familiar with, but not by those names. So rock pooling or exploring tidal pools with or without a dip net, I've done that many times. And I've gotten multiple fish massages, uh, mainly by the <laughs> creek chub that are in many of the local creeks. And okay. they always come to me and I can, I'm like, oh, here they are. And of course, it's a good way if, if you're trying to do a minnow study, which is hard because, you know, it's like, oh, small with a dark line down the side. That narrows it down to 25 species. Oh, <laughs> breaking new ground there. So I've had many fish massages, and I've done lots of rock pooling. Hey there, folks. This is Ian, one half of the Earthy Chats host team. I'm just here to let you know about the Talking with Green Teachers podcast produced by Green Teacher. If you don't know who Green Teacher is, we are a nonprofit network of environmental educators all around the world. You can join this network for only $32 a year. That includes a subscription to our quarterly magazine, which has been running in North America since 1991. All proceeds go back into the organization to help us enhance environmental literacy among young learners. For more information, check out greenteacher.com. You can find Talking with Green Teachers wherever you get your podcasts. All of the resources featured in this podcast, plus many more, for students and educators alike, can be found online at the Outdoor Learning Store. Visit www.outdoorlearningstore.ca to view what's on offer. From waterproof notepads to binoculars and dip nets to sit pads, the store has you covered to take your learning outside. In addition, there are educator resource books to help you take your outdoor education to the highest level. That's www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. We're Canada's non-profit resource store. I actually have a good rock pooling anecdote from Euclulet on Vancouver Island, south of Tofino. So I think there's such magic to a tidal pool because of its transience. It only exists 
in between tide cycles and it is never going to be exactly the same. And that's not an overly poetic or overly dramatic statement. Like it literally is true. Mm. Just that concept I think as well is incredibly valuable when you're teaching about like things that are ephemeral seasonal or change diurnally or quickly is that changing spatial and temporal scales like create different environments and that's like i love i love that that really really resonates with kids because it's like whoa it's totally different and with a tidal pool you can actually see the change happening in real time especially if it's a really sunny day and you're seeing the evaporation mm-hmm. so this tidal pool that we were looking at at Euclid and we had just stopped to have lunch and we were like well we're at the shore we're obviously going to go down and find a cool tidal pool and sit by it and not pay any attention to our lunch and just totally get absorbed in what's happening in the tidal pool but as mm-hmm. evaporation was happening quite quickly this tidal pool was getting lower and lower, the amount of water in it. And there was this, either a shell or a rock, some sort of shelter at the very bottom center of the pool, the deepest part of the pool. And as we were sitting there watching it, we saw these little pincers occasionally pop out. So essentially this was the prime real estate and there were multiple small crabs in this tidal pool. And as the water evaporated and there was less volume of water in the pool itself it became this competition about who got the you know not the top of the mountain the bottom of the valley which in this case was the prime place and we didn't end up staying until quote unquote the bitter end because we did have to go you know it's a long drive back to Nanaimo and such from Euclid but that experience just I don't know it's one of those sit spot moments where you really recognize how on the edge some species are and you know i'm sure that story probably had a sad ending i doubt they all survived because it was still a long time before the tide was going to come back up but you know then that opens up opportunities for black oyster catchers and black turnstones and you know some of the the charismatic avifauna that you see on those rocky shorelines in the pacific northwest and it's brutal sometimes nature, right? I mean, you only have to watch some of the more recent like David Attenborough documentaries, with which really sh- kind of show the, the the struggle that animals go through. Yeah. And yeah, there is that thing of there's if they're not well sheltered, then they will become prey. But then, of course, there's the fact that that they are then food for another animal further up the food chain. So. It's all it's all important, and is one animal more important? Is it more important that the crab lives or the insects or the birds, you know? And I find that quite interesting, the way that we kind of assign, in my experience, I have this sort of weird ability to assign different values to different animals, and I have to mm-hmm. really work hard on that to be like, just because, you know, it's less cute or less, you know, a cow is... It's just as important, right? Or is it because it's domesticated? It's this deep philosophical chat. Very <laughs> philosophical, earthy chats. Oh, bringing you all the vibes, you know? That's we, we, There's massage and then there's philosophy. It's all of the things that you need. Exactly. Or both at once. All at once. But no, I love the idea of you investigating and, and just taking time to watch pools. And it shows that it's a timeless pastime right that there's it can be interesting through your whole life and you know what I haven't done recently because 
I haven't spent that much time near the ocean, um, is actually go and do that. And I'm heading back to the island soon and I am going to rock. What did I call it? I can't even remember. Rock pooling. What are we? Rock pooling. Sorry, now I'm thinking of. You're going to rock the rock pooling. I'm going to rock the rock pooling. I'm going to spend lots of time focused in there. You can also use them in freshwater, though, the old dip net, of which we have much more where I live now. You can use it in any kind of water, and it's kind of the starter tool that leads to other useful toys, which can be as simple as an ice cube tray, like the classic, I'm sure you've done it, the classic pond study, stream study, whatever, and you know, you use the dip net, that's how you get critters, and then maybe throw them into kind of a general tub, you know, whatever you have lying around the house, and then the ice cube tray, you know, get a little spoon, scoop them out, they each, you can kind of categorize them, and you know, any pond study or stream study I've ever done, you've had a, a laminated dichotomous key to the common mm. species in your area and that just like that's where you get kind of the Sherlock Holmes sort of vibe going on and like students of any age like I know in our, our third episode you talked about having the the grade nines with dip nets and you know the too cool for everything but they still admitted that it was it was pretty neat like it really is timeless you get a dip net and some sort of receptacle and just boom off they go throw them a dichotomous key they kind of challenge each other. Okay, this is a, a predaceous diving beetle. No, it's a mid-sized diving beetle. It's like, well, they're pretty similar. Let's look. And that's it, like you say. And sometimes with the younger kids, I've done it, like you say, I've done it with grade nines. I've done it with grade twelves. I've done it with kindergarten grade ones. And yeah, you just might have to help them follow the key a little bit. I tend to pose the questions and then they would follow it. I like um, my dichotomous keys are laminated, firstly, to avoid water contamination. And then they're blown up big enough some of them are letter but some of them are bigger so that you can trace it with a uh, highlighter mm. or a, a whiteboard marker so you start and you know does it have legs yes or no like well, does it have a shell yes or no and you can just kind of follow your way down and i find that that's a really great way to keep kids engaged also until you really get to the id part at the bottom you doesn't have to be able to read to right. follow a dichotomous key you look at the picture like does it look like it and you can you can find your way down so that's a really nice thing that makes it universal to be able to have those kind of adventures what are the critters that get the most like oh man look at that like what in, in your experience what are the ones that just always are showstoppers <sighs> i mean honestly all of it but i think they like the larvae the larvae yeah. a lot really sort of intrigues them weirdly despite them being kind of pretty ubiquitous they love they love finding snails finding a leech has had <laughs> very strong results i wouldn't say that they were all positive but i mean what's funny is watching a leech swim oh they're beautiful it's, it's fabulous it's like you know a miniature eel or a snake but then the idea of it coming to suck on you is a bit <laughs> intimidating but you know I think it's Victorian, Edwardian English loved a good bloodletting, you know? <laughs> and I do think that there are actually, don't quote me on this, I have to look it up again, but I do think there are instances where they are being used in modern medicine. I think probably, today. yeah. I Why think so. They? I think it's to do with something to do with toxins and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so they're actually incredibly helpful. But, you know, the Amazon, like going to the Amazon scares me a little bit because the idea of wading and then 
yep. being covered in leeches is quite intimidating for me. I'm not going to lie. Well, that movie Stand By Me didn't help any, like, didn't help. Have you seen that one? The, mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the scene. The scene. No, that's it. Have you had any other experiences with favorites? I think any of, like, the Dobson fly, alder fly, fish fly, you know, the Helgramites mm. with the super pincers. Like, they're basically a tube with jaws. <laughs> so those ones get a lot of attention. And, like, dragonfly and damselfly nymphs, especially the big ones, like, you know, darners and cruisers, some of the bigger dragonflies, you know, their they bottom the jaw. Yeah, the damselflies have the feathery, three feathery appendages in the back. And they all have a lower jaw, the labium, that's kind of like a cash register. It just like shoots out. <laughs> and it's like completely horrifying. If they existed on a grander scale, like there'd be movies about them. So yeah, they mm-hmm. uh, usually get a lot of superlatives when those are pulled out of the water with dip nets. Mm. And what's great is that if you do like, yeah, like you said, you just need like a washy up bowl or I have like plastic tubs that i pick up from thrift stores and ice cube trays but you know it's all gonna live you've got water from the river or the pond or the lake where you are and it's all gonna live you can put it all back and it's pretty fantastic that you get to see them and do some study and then everything survives we are the columbia basin environmental education network or cbeam you can visit our website at cbeen.ca We are the regional network for environmental education in the Columbia Basin, supporting a community of engaged and effective environmental educators by connecting them to resources, information, professional development and networking opportunities. Stoked on Science, providing engaging, educational and fun programmes across the Columbia Basin. Is your school or organisation looking to develop your environmental programming? Connect your outdoor time more deeply to the curriculum or engage your students or teachers with unique programmes that go beyond the basic science topics like delving into the history of the earth, how it's changed and where it's going. If so, visit www.stokedonscience.com to connect for environmental education consulting or to book programs for your K-12 and adult professional development courses. Another thing that I've gotten into also with a dip net is fish watching. So there's fishing, you know, using a rod and reel. Mm-hmm. But I love throwing on a mask grabbing a dip net and just kind of watching the fish doing their thing. And oftentimes I don't even use the dip net, to be honest. If I want to identify who's down there, I might catch one. Okay, it's a creek chub. Cool. And then just watch them, you know, with the goggles on from the shore or kind of standing in the creek while getting a fish massage. Because, (laughs) and this is not dumping on, on fishing, angling at all, but when you fish and you get them out of the water, they're not in their element. Whereas when you're watching them with goggles and just seeing fish being fish, it's a whole other experience. And I think there was actually a little mini feature on CBC recently about fish watching. So apparently I'm not the only weirdo out there doing it. I don't think you're a weirdo. You just appreciate (laughs) nature and, and actually have the patience to sit and watch it. I've never done that. And that's you're, you're inspiring me. I've got dip nets for days, so I could definitely go and have a little adventure. I think 
well, what we're planning in Revelstoke in the fall, they have a little kokanee fish spawning festival um, mm-hmm. through Wild Type Revelstoke. There's people come in and looking at all of the different parts of the salmon, but just along along the way um, at Eagle Creek, uh, it's about 15 minutes outside where I live. I last year got to see my first proper like sockeye salmon. Oh, like the breeding, the, the mating rituals. The yeah, with the red pointy face they look very alien and what you don't get because i'd watched a documentary about them good old david Attenborough, my favorite yeah bit of pride but they'd done they'd done a piece on on the sockeye and what i hadn't realized because i hadn't seen it in person is like how huge these fish are they are massive and you walk like five minutes down a path and you're not interfering at all you do have to look for bears but it's like a braided river channel so it's lots of little streams with a a sort of rocky cobbly uh substrate bed and 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 these little islands of 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 this sediment and rocks patterned about right so you can kind of jump from islands and in these very shallow parts of the stream are the salmon and they there's this thing where they're in like threes where you Mm. see the 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 woman's there and then the male comes up front and the back and i thought that they were competing but what they actually do is like play guard so they guard their friend while while they're doing their thing and then Mm -hmm. it allows they then sort of reciprocate the favor later but these beautiful fish it wouldn't have fit in most dip nets, this thing. You know, two, I guess, at least 30 centimetres bigger. Much bigger, actually. Maybe, you know, maybe 50 centimetres. They're huge things. And also water does play funny things with magnification. Yeah. Um, but what you're saying about just observing nature without interfering and just looking, I was absolutely amazed at this this ritual this spectacle that nature was providing and it was just an incredibly beautiful moment to sit and watch yeah i feel like we've talked up goggles more than dip nets in a way but you know that's (laughs) you go out with one tool and you end up using another and that's the nature of it so exactly and if you're swimming yeah oh Oh. oh that was a good one i like that cheesy that was beautiful but you could got to have a little bit of cheese in your life I think it's it's very important. Thank you for listening to Earthy Chats, Fables from the Field. You can access all of the equipment we feature in the show at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. We hope you enjoy your own field adventures this summer. Take care. As a kid, whenever I heard the name brownies, I immediately got hungry. Like, I, <laughs> I was just like, brownies? Do they, like, get brownies at the sessions? The child I'm pretty brain. sure there was some cake at some point. But, oh, that's so funny. I am... Um... I was the leader of the sprites at various point. I don't. I don't think that I was the most respectable brownie leader that they've ever had. Um, I think I was quite rebellious at that sort of age against. Ah, that's um, allowed. The sort of the regime, if you the will. The regime going against the regime. <laughs> <laughs>